0: All I knew is I didn't want what I was building to get blown up because there's no Home Depot, no hardware store to go, go to. And so one of the things I did is I said, let's try putting a case of beer outside the perimeter and see what happens. Sure enough, in the morning, it was gone. And all I know, we started doing that every week and we never got mortared. So it was okay. My job was to make sure things got built, not destroyed.
1: Welcome to the Portland, Maine Business Podcast, the place to get ideas, insight, and strategies from professionals who are in the trenches building successful businesses. Here is your host, Shelby Turcott. Hey, guys. I am here, and I am delighted to have Mr. George Casey, strategist, author, thinker, executive, who currently serves as a Vistage chair, and you do a bunch of business consulting, George. And At the same time, you're operating as the president and CEO of Stockbridge Associates, uh, among other leadership roles. You have a very deep knowledge of leadership and business, business experience, more than 40 years. And you have traveled the country, George. You guys have owned a couple of homes and you have done your fair share, especially in the real estate market. But at this point, you have started to transition to helping business owners in, uh, in southern and central Maine and i i like you george because occasionally we can find you eating a, a good old deep fried turkey or having a good glass of irish whiskey so welcome to the call george
0: thanks shelby happy to be here
1: so i want you to start off you know i told you before the call i think you're the the legend uh, or legendary as, as far as your storytelling abilities and you have many of them as far as turning points and whatnot but i want you to start off by telling one of them, you said you had a couple you wanted to go with, and we're going to roll the dice and see what comes out uh, that helped shape your career, both as a person and from a business standpoint.
0: Yeah, sure. would be happy to. So um, a little bit, I gr- grew up in uh, Cohasset, Massachusetts, a little town that's about 3,500 people, about 25 miles south of Boston, and um, ended up going to a place called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, in Troy, New York, under a Navy ROTC scholarship. And when I went to RPI, like everybody there, I was really good in math and science. And I started off as a nuclear engineering uh, student. And uh, as part of that, in engineering, you had to take four semesters of physics, uh, uh, a bunch of semesters of chemistry, so on and so forth. In the physics, first year I did fine. Second year, second semester, you're into really nuclear physics. And all of a sudden, I couldn't understand the difference between a mu meson, a pi meson, and a glass of beer. And um, I said, if I'm going to be a nuclear engineer and I can't get this stuff, I'm going to be in uh, tough, uh, tough uh, straits. And so but in looking around at other alternatives, I saw that RPI had a new major called environmental engineering. And I said, you know what, at the time, this covered sewer treatment plants, water treatment plants, and that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what, the concept of a piece of you know what going down a pipe, I get, I don't get the pie Maison and the mutant Maison, but I get this. So, I shifted my major to environmental engineering and ended up being the first class of graduate environmental engineers at RPI. There were three of us. And as we stood for graduation in the field house with my parents in the stand, and before us, 80 or 100 electrical engineers had stood up to acknowledge their degrees. So, when the three of the environmental engineering guys stood up and to acknowledge our degrees, somebody in the, in the stands yelled, janitors <laughs> and so so that started the uh <laughs> my journey by the way i never did any environmental engineering i went in the navy did uh, uh was in the navy civil engineer corps and spent 18 months on guam as a public works officer then do two tours in vietnam um running Seabees, building riverboat bases in the Mekong Delta on the Cambodian border. And you know what? I'm glad I never was an engineer. Engineering was a great background for doing things, but I learned along the way that I really enjoyed leading um, way more than the technical side of engineering. Long story. uh,
1: Your parents must have been proud when they stood up at graduation. Oh, yeah.
0: And (laughs) in fact, I have on my wall here, Shelby, a um, a thing from Stars and Stripes magazine. There was a cartoon called In Vietnam with Sergeant Mike. And literally it says, George, old buddy, I see your service record book. You majored in sanitation engineering in college. And the sergeant is holding a mop for the, for George, <laughs> the guy he's talking to. So, um so anyway
1: there we go good times now you mentioned the navy so you ended up in the navy and then eventually you ended up back in business school can you talk about that transition and and why you ended up back at business school
0: oh it was easy you know that when i was in vietnam that you know my job was to build things and to make sure they didn't get blown up in fact that's where i learned creative management when we were on the cambodian border um The Viet Cong were literally right outside um, our perimeter at night. And we could see them with the infrared scopes. All I knew is I didn't want what I was building to get blown up because there's no Home Depot, no hardware store to go, go to. And so one of the things I did is I said, let's try putting a case of beer outside the perimeter and see what happens. Sure enough, in the morning, it was gone. And all I know, we started doing that every week and we never got mortared. So it was, okay, my job was to make sure things got built, not destroyed. So when I was coming out of the Navy, I knew how I could get things done. But you never had to worry about a budget. You know, money was not a thing. And so I felt that, okay, when I got out, where do I go learn about money? And I went and saw a uh, Ira Harrod, who was the Dean of Students at RPI, who I'd known and worked with. And he said, there are two places to go. One is the Tuck School at Dartmouth. The other other is the uh, Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And um, I'd spent a lot of time in the boonies and Dartmouth kind of felt like the boonies. I never really lived in the city. So I ended up choosing Wharton and going and actually majoring in real estate finance. Um, So, uh, that's how I ended up at business school. I wanted to learn about money. That was the degree of my sophistication.
1: Fantastic. Now, we're going to backtrack for a second because um, obviously then you transitioned into the real estate side of things and you kind of climbed the ladder and, and went through and ended up with, you know, Toll Brothers and a bunch of different places. And we're going to cover that in a second. But, you know, you mentioned business school. You mentioned kind of getting your um, getting your footing, you know, in the Navy and really being, you know no pun intended, in the trenches trying to kind of learn what you were doing. And I think social media nowadays often glorifies owning a business, right? Being an entrepreneur, you know, glorifying it in terms of like what you do and starting it and anybody can do it and this and that. And it's never that easy. I want you to talk a little bit about your first job when you got out of business school and how did that help kind of shape that climb as you, you know, climbed the leadership ladder? And are there any particular stories, you know, that, that kind of taught you a valuable lesson, kind of brought you along, made you realize, you know, you were on the right path as you kind of, you know, blossomed from a business mindset?
0: Yeah. So my fir- first job uh, coming out of business school, I went to work for a real estate investment trust called the Charter Company in, um, in Jacksonville, Florida and went in at a time that the market, real estate market had crashed. And so I ended up with a portfolio of non-performing loans. And so I had to sort myself through those. And the core decision that you had to make is did you stay with the existing developer and trying to rework the loan? Or did you take the property back and try to work on it yourself? And the first lesson that I learned with that from actually my first boss, a guy named Bob Whitley, was that before you ever underwrite the economics of a deal, you have to underwrite the character of the person you're dealing with. And no matter how good the economics are, if you have someone who does not have good character, it doesn't make sense to try to work with them as a partner. And I think that lesson is one that carries forward all the way through that, uh, you know, when looking for a job, you really underwrite the character of the person you're gonna work for. If you're hiring somebody, you're underwriting the character of the person who you're gonna teach or who works for you. And I don't think enough people understand the importance of that core determination, you know, as they look at doing business. Business is one thing of doing, you know, creating something, selling something, providing a service, but it's all about what is the character of you and the people you choose to deal with. And that's a, uh, a great lesson to learn.
1: Let me ask you this. Would you say, you know, if you're talking to somebody young, right, let's say there's somebody, I don't know, early 20s, mid 20s, maybe they're just young in business, Would you have them? Would you tell them the exact same thing in terms of, you know, uh, early on lessons? Would you say, hey, here's one of the first things I would tell you from a from a value standpoint is work with, you know, maybe they're trying to climb the ladder, maybe they don't own the business. Would you tell them to focus on working with people, you know, that have, you know, good moral, good integrity, things like that?
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Align yourself. And and to find people who you think you can learn from, and also ideally find people who would love to learn from you. I, this is more than a decade ago. I wrote an article called Wanted and Needed 25-Year-Old Mentor, and at the time, I was a CEO of a company, and social media had just started, and all I knew is I didn't know anything about social media, but the 20-somethings really did. And so I wrote this article saying that oftentimes people talk about mentoring as an older person teaching a younger person. This flipped the table and said, you know, there are times when an older person needs to learn from a younger person. So I wrote this uh, story and uh, a young fellow, Jeremy Sharp from uh, Tucson, Arizona, reached back to me and said, I'm willing to be your mentor. And so Jeremy taught me how to use Twitter when Twitter was new, so on and so forth. And um, along the way, I've mentored him the other way. Um, But uh, as I said, finding people who are willing to learn, to teach and to learn is more important than anything. And character is part of that.
1: I like that. Do you know if the article is still online? Whew. If not, we'll have to try to dig that up and see if we well, can post I, it. I, yeah,
0: I, I don't know. where I might still have it. All right.
1: You know, we'll, we'll we'll back back
0: way, way back in the vault.
1: Back in the <laughs> vault, exactly. Back when you had the typewriter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you. I think that's a great point in terms of the character piece. Now, again, first job, like you said, you, you you learn, you get mentored a little bit, you start to kind of climb the ladder, and then you have held a variety of roles as you've moved through. And I think that's one of the things that gives you, uh, you know, so much perspective from the business side of things is you have operated from, you know, a one-man show all the way up through to huge companies. And, you know, even like you said, in in the Navy, from a leadership standpoint, you know, you developed large communities. You were down in Florida. I don't even remember how many, how many houses did you say that community was? S-
0: 16,500.
1: Yeah, so not small, no, uh, no, no duplex. The,
0: that, 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 <laughs> no, we had duplex, but, but that community has a population of over 70,000 people. So it's actually larger than the city of Portland.
1: Yeah, that's, that's not small. Um, so as you've developed your business skills, let's just say, in a variety of settings, um, can you talk about some of the lessons you've learned from working in smaller businesses or working with smaller businesses and how some of those leadership and or business skills transferred to larger businesses, right? Because we're going to have a variety of people listening, some solopreneurs, some people in corporate you know, executive roles. What goes both ways that you've experienced?
0: Um, I think the first thing is, do you have a group of people who want to work with each other and so in a small business this is highly important because you have a very small number of people so if you have one bad apple that could be 40 percent of your workforce um and so what i've learned is that choosing people to uh to work with and the selection of those people is so important if You go into my Vistage groups, you know, the problem that most of the smaller companies deal with is finding the right team of people. If you go to Jim Collins's work, he says, who are the right people to have on the bus? As a small company, this is highly important. And entrepreneurs too often, you know, rely on friends and family and so on and so forth, which usually leads to leads to bad results. And so the ability and the time you take to figure out who you want to partner with, affiliate with, whatever in a small business is so important. When you get to a larger business, it is still that, who you surround yourself with, but it's more, do you have good systems for bringing people into the company and training people? And have you established a culture? You know, culture is really driven in a small company by the leader, founder and uh, understanding what are the culture is the glue, the rules that you have dealing with each other. Small companies, very easy. You develop it. Large companies, it's there whether you like it or not. If you ask somebody to describe the culture of a company truthfully, they can tell it to you in about a sentence. Um And so when you get to the larger companies, it's again, finding the right people to fit in the culture that you have. And then secondly, how do you make sure that you keep them and you keep the culture alive because that is what the company is. Cultures are very hard to change. Um, And uh, people have broken a lot of picks against that rock.
1: Yeah, now you mentioned, and... um... You mentioned the partnership piece and, you know, relationships tie into that, like you said, between, you know, workers and and leadership down to, um, you know, other leaders and and across the board with customers and everything else. I want you to talk a minute because I know from having past discussions with you that, you know, as everybody does in business, you've had some good and some not good good experiences. Um, From a partnership standpoint, if you're giving advice to somebody who's considering entering a partnership, what do you, you know, what types of advice do you give them? Because I'm not going to say your whole career was built on it, but knowing how hard it is and having talked to other business owners, partnerships are very, very challenging. It's almost like another marriage. You know, what advice would you give to somebody with your entire background, um, you know, having a considerable amount of experience in it?
0: I would say, have your wife or significant other partner meet that person and get their feedback. That, that, my wife Linda has been right way more than she's been wrong in terms of evaluating people.
1: I, I that was not <laughs> what I expected. I like that, and I believe it. I believe it. Um, no,
0: no, that this is um, an interesting thing. My my older son Peter uh, got his MBA at University of North Carolina. And took a course from a uh, professor, Jerry Bell, in organizational theory. And I would known Jerry because he had done some work uh, with leaders at the Urban Land Institute. And I had the fortunate uh, experience to deal with him. And Jerry's thing is say, you know what? The most important business decision you will make is who you choose to marry. And if you get that one right, a lot of other good decisions flow from it. If you get that one wrong, it really is a bumpy ride. And I go back to the thing of in a partnership, it really is, do you fit? And you can, as a business side of things, you know, look at the business things and overlook the personal signals. And, you know, I will tell you, Linda picks up the personal signals way better than I ever do. And she keeps going why are you so dense? Didn't you see whatever? No. (laughs) And and so if I were doing a partnership, it would be make sure I really know that person. And if it is uh, someone that you've known for five or 10 years, and you really know each other, that's one thing. But if somebody that is not quite known, you have to rely on the instincts and feedback of others to help you make that decision. Others are know you and can read that other person.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. Is there? Um, you know, I think a lot of times you look at it like you said, and I think people look for you know complementary skills, right? I'm I have a skill set in this; they have a skill set in this. We complement each other from the business standpoint, but like you said, you often forget the human aspect of yeah, that.
0: Yeah, and and it's the human aspect that actually drives a business. That. Um, if, you, if that piece doesn't work, you're just gonna have nothing but a train wreck at some point. Um, and also businesses change over time. I look at the businesses that uh, I deal with and many of them started off as one thing and ended up as something else. But if you have good uh, relationships among the people and trust among the people, you can switch and pick up new lines of business, drop old lines of business, so on and so forth. The technical stuff can be learned. Character is pretty well embedded.
1: Yeah, that's, that's for sure. And like you said, business is always a moving target. I want to ask you on the follow-up of the partnership piece, you know, somebody thinking, like you said, maybe they own a business and, you know, the last year, 15, 16 months has obviously been challenging And a lot of businesses have had to evolve, you know, are there certain points where you would tell somebody who owns a business or runs a business to start looking at partnerships to go into other areas, right? Like if I'm talking to you uh, from a, a client standpoint and saying, hey, I'm in the training business and I want to branch off into whatever X, Y, or Z, which maybe is in a related field, is there a point that you tell somebody that it makes sense, you know, to start to look for a strategic partner, or does it again go back to what you just said? Is it, you know, the human element, um, and then you start to tack the other components on? Is there a strategy or is it literally individual situation by individual situation?
0: No, I I think it really gets back to uh, core of what you want to do. And there are some people who want to run a lifestyle business, and they wanna control everything. In that situation, you know, finding partnerships is gonna be nothing but a train wreck. You're not gonna grow very much. And frankly, you're gonna end up with people who enjoy being told what to do and are happy in that kind of environment. That kind of business works great. On the other hand, if you really want to say, you know what, I wanna leave an imprint on society with what I'm doing uh, with my business. I want to create a legacy business for my family. I want to create a lot of wealth. If those kinds of things drive you, then growth is going to probably be a piece of what you do. And growth happens both internally and externally. Um, But along the way, you will see opportunities. So part of it is, do you have a broad network of people that you can talk to? I mean, this is the shameless uh, self-promotion for Vistage Group, that when you have multiple CEOs of different businesses working with each other, I've seen more often than not, they they see joint opportunities together, they trust each other because they've known each other in the group, and then they form a partnership to do things. And that way you get this kind of um, serendipity that it's people you like doing business with and it's opportunity for both in terms of, of growth. And, but you have to want to do that for a reason that is personal. And the worst situation is someone who thinks they want to grow, but really don't want to give up control because in growth, you have to sooner or later learn how to delegate. And if you can't learn the art of delegating, growing is going to be very hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned your Vistage Group, and that's you know what you spend the majority of your day doing right now is you're dealing with you know CEOs and business owners, and I think oftentimes aspiring business owners, you know, think that by the time you reach a certain level, that you literally are passing all of your problems on to other people and you're, you know, sitting there printing money and whatnot. And I think you could, in fact, argue the exact opposite. I think basically you inherit more problems um, and you rely and, and and you essentially have to rely on others to try to help solve them. Right. Which is what you just said in terms of delegating. Can you talk about one or two of the most common issues that you hear or see on a day to day basis? Because, You know, you deal with, you know, you mentioned it, but you deal with people in a vast array of um, businesses and uh, whatnot. So you see the full gamut from industry to industry. Are there commonalities amongst them that, you know, you, again, you deal with on a a regular basis?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, the most common one is um, having to take your hand off the tiller get yourself out of, we call it <clears throat> on the business versus in the business. A lot of people are there day-to-day handling multiple decisions. There, The adrenaline of running a business on a day-to-day business is really addictive. Um, <clears throat> and But to grow a business, you run out of your own bandwidth. And the ability to hire people who are better than you are, to be comfortable with that, to train people, and to learn how to delegate as opposed to abdicate. One of the biggest problems is when people first try to delegate, they just dump the whole thing to someone and said, it's on you. That's abdication, it's not delegation. Delegation is making sure the um, authority to do things is handed down to somebody who's trained to do stuff and that there's a communication and a system of making sure that it's on track. So it is um, not abdication. You are really saying handle this, but we've got a set of metrics that we're gonna use, including personal check-ins to make sure stuff is online and going where it should. And we've got enough of a relationship that we can talk about when things are going right, when things are going wrong, what we're learning, how we adjust. You know what? Even Ted Williams didn't hit a 1,000. And managers don't hit a 1,000 either. They get things wrong. The difference between great managers and great people you grow as managers is that you acknowledge that things are wrong. You have a conversation about what it takes to make it better and do it again. What you don't want is somebody who keeps getting the same things wrong over and over again. Um, but that transition is the toughest one, irrespective of industry. If a leader cannot make that transition, then that's okay. But they will be limited to a business that they run by command and control and God help their family if they get run over have a stroke or so on, because there'll be nobody left to run the business on a day-to-day basis.
1: Let me ask you this. Do you see certain levels where that takes place? Like, is there a jump? You know, is it going from one to two? Is it going from five to 10? Is it, you know, are there tiers?
0: Yeah. You usually see the beginnings of it in a company that's someplace between 20 and 50 employees, depending on the type of company. That at that point, you've had to develop an organization of some sort. Somebody's responsible for operations. Somebody's responsible for sales. Somebody's And you may be diving into one of those areas deeper than the other, but you're starting to have to delegate out um, functional responsibilities. So that happens in the 20 to 50 range when you start to at least have somebody that I can point to and say they're responsible for HR or whatever. I've had several CEOs that their businesses got to 40 and they hadn't done that. They had 40 people reporting to them. And it was like chaos. Um, And what you learn is that as a leader, you can pretty well handle about five or six people reporting to you. After that, it gets dicey. You have to be very good at it Um, or have very, very competent people who can handle the bulk of stuff. But usually that five to six range is about right. Um, And so the question is, can you hire and find people to fill those roles who you can grow and are you comfortable with this art of delegating and learning it
1: yeah and um I mean that's you know that's always a tough transition I think at any point I look at it you know just with you know like the size of my business and realizing you know you and I've had discussions on this but you know delegating things out and starting in order to not be the bottleneck in the business and having to pass it on uh and like you said otherwise you end up putting out every single fire i can't even imagine what it's like with you know 40 people trying to <laughs> trying to report to you your your whole day is fires
0: that that's how you learn to love irish
1: whiskey yeah <laughs> that's that's the bonus that's the bonus piece of advice right. uh so george in the last year and you and i had a couple discussions on this as well like covid has been crazy right and and businesses have evolved My business has evolved. You've probably seen a a change, and I would say virtually every one of yours, although obviously some industries are more affected than others. But in the last year, last 12, last 15 months, can you talk about some of the approaches and changes that some of the business and leaders or, or leadership has had to make in the last year in terms of adapting? Are there any particular examples you have personally dealt with in your group um, things you've heard about, read about, where you're like, you know, this was a, a very intelligent, strategic position. Uh, maybe it was a pivot in their business or an, an adjustment in how they made. Uh, and it may not have kept the business from going under, but perhaps it set them up for growth, maybe during this past year, maybe even in the future.
0: Yeah, I, th- there's a couple things that, that are packed inside of this. The first is that the people who did really well during this period, particularly about a year ago, were the ones who intentionally over And they were uh, talking to all kinds of people in their companies, big and small, letting them know what they knew and what they didn't know, letting them know the plan that they were working on, letting them know that the plan could change, but it was over-communication. And that piece of it, becomes even more important as you get more and more people working from home in remote situations. You have to intentionally over-communicate. And um, so that's one. I think the second thing that has happened, and it's really not so much tied to COVID, but we were seeing it before COVID, is that we've run out of people to work. And almost every company that I have can't find enough people. And what I'm seeing is that all of a sudden, companies are having to understand that finding and keeping good people and training good people and developing good people has to be intentional. And if I look inside of HR uh, functions inside of companies two years ago, let's say, it was all around what I call Darth Vader. It was making sure the boxes are checked so that if you ever got audited, you couldn't get fined for some kind of a violation of a federal law or state law or so on. It was really a, um, a very much of a bookkeeping kind of exercise. What I'm seeing right now is an understanding that that doesn't go away, but you're having to add the second function that is really intentional about going out and finding, keeping, and training, and developing people. So it's finding new people to come in and keeping people who are in the organization there. And that's a very different cat. That's somebody who's very adept in social media. When you think about it, you're out canvassing using LinkedIn, using social media, so on and so forth to let people know what you are, who you are, day-to-day pictures of what you and your people are doing. You've got a database just like you would for sales, but you now got for potential employees that you'd like to bring in at some point. You've got an intentional outreach program to those people. So when you go to hire, they're already familiar with you. I mean, it is a very different world. And I think coming out of COVID, you're seeing smart companies understanding that they need to really rethink their whole people side of the business, because that has become the throttle um, that either holds them back or allows them to accelerate. Um, And that has really been something that I've watched over the last year really evolve. The really good companies are figuring this out. The companies that aren't, are just going to be keep fighting. They keep losing people. They can't hire. Who they hire doesn't stay. And so it's uh, that's going to be it. You know what? Ideas are great, but ideas without people to execute them is a zero, is a goose egg.
1: Yeah, that's something, you know, you'd mentioned before, but like Kim and Ania, who we had on, yeah. uh, you know, mentioned and we discussed a little bit, uh, probably prior to the call and whatnot, is, is really trying to, find the right people, and then keep the right people, which is something you alluded to early. What do you see in the next... So you talk about coming out of COVID, social media, retaining people. What do you think is going to happen in the next one to three years? I'm not going to put you on the spot or anything, but you called multiple things during this pandemic. I remember from the very beginning that you said, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And so... I believe in your foreshadowing and your knowledge of where things are going. What do you think is going to happen in the next, let's say, one to three years?
0: Um, a, a couple of things. George's crystal ball. George's, <laughs> George's crystal ball. Number one, the people problem is not going to go away. And so you're going to see a lot more automation going on and things, a lot more of bringing artificial intelligence in. Um, so I think you're gonna see that piece of, of things. Uh, number two, you're gonna just see more digitization, which means, okay, how can I use technology to do things that um, we couldn't before? And when you think about it, you know, just the way instead of you going to a store uh, to buy something, you very quickly just go to Amazon and click and you bought it and it gets delivered. Um, you're gonna see just more of that. And the companies who are really working the technology side and the automation side will be the ones that I think longer term um, uh, will do better. Um, second, I really think this um, importance of culture and how you develop people. I keep looking and saying people, you know, I have a fellow who's uh, in the excavating business. And excavating and uh, commercial hardscape landscaping. And I said, you know what? You maybe have to rethink your business that you might be actually in the people and uh, the people development business that just happens to do landscaping as a mechanism to do it. But your job is to find people who choose um, to work in, the outside. They like doing that. Um, they don't necessarily want to go to college, but they want a career path. They can make good money. And maybe your uh, signal to those kinds of people is come here. We can take you and teach you the skills to be a stonewall mason, for example. There aren't almost any of them around and good masons can make a hundred thousand bucks a year. Okay, we can put you on that kind of a path that is personally gratifying. You develop a trade. You've got working outside. And you know what? If that uh, resonates with you, this is the place you want to come. And so it's a twisting of saying what we do. We're a landscape contractor to being we develop people. I think you're going to see iterations of that being a way to. Find and retain people and be much more. I use the word intentional a lot, but be intentional about it.
1: I like that. I like that kind of flipping the perspective on it. Um, Very, very key and very interesting. Now, we always try to leave people with an action step. You know, one of the last things, like, you know, if you're sitting down having a chat with somebody, young business owner, business owner in general, and they get off this podcast and their first thought is like, wow, after listening to George, I need to, you know, look at the people I'm, I'm surrounding myself with and in partnerships with, I need to look at the employees that I'm retaining. I need to, you know, think about this, this, and this. What's the first thing, what's like one action step you would tell somebody to do when they, when they leave this podcast, when they get off, what's the first thing you would tell somebody to do?
0: You don't have to do it alone. One of the biggest errors, people think they try to do it all themselves. And how you surround yourself with people that can help you is one of the key things. And it can be from you know good professionals, accountants, lawyers, so on, to just good advisors, or in my case, again, the shameless self-promotion. Do you put yourself with the other peers who are other COOs, if that's your thing, or other uh, um, CEOs or whatever, you don't have to do it alone. And um, you discover that the perspective of reaching out and giving part of yourself to other people pays itself in dividends coming back and helping you get better. So don't do it alone.
1: Absolutely. I'll tell you personally, my... Uh, my business and life changed when I started to spend more time trying to surround myself with others uh, in the industry, but with very different perspectives and, you know, everything, like you said, from just kind of relying on people to share ideas to everything else. And uh, that's definitely one of the bonuses you have uh, is sharing industry stuff yeah. across. But,
0: but, but it's an investment. You always Absolutely. say, how, how can I do it? I'm busy. I'm up to my eyeballs and alligators. The answer is you have to carve out time, just like people going to you, Shelby. Carve out time because keeping their health and their fitness becomes important. So they carve out, you know, two hours a day, three days a week, whatever it is, to go uh, be with Shelby because that's important to me. It's the same thing. You've got to carve out a, if it's a day a month, twelve days a year, to sit down with others. And work on the bigger issues, and invest that time, knowing that what you get back will be way more than what you ever invested.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, George, we're going to finish it off. We're going to do a real quick, uh, rapid-fire question—you uh, know, game. Let's call it. Um, I want the first word or the first couple of thoughts that come to mind. We're just going to knock out a few of them, and then we're going to call it quits. Okay. You good. Yep. Are you ready? yes all right first thing beer or wine oh beer (laughs) lake or ocean ocean summer or winter summer and last one if you were stranded on a deserted island what is one thing you would want to have
0: that's an interesting one Pro- pro- probably the never ending bottle of Redbreast uh, 15 year Irish whiskey.
1: <laughs> Somehow I thought it might go there. Um, so George, fantastic. Loved having you on great answers. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you and we'll make sure to throw up some links and whatnot so they can check out information on you and your group.
0: Yeah. So, um, you can uh, find me at uh, www.stockbridge, S-T-O-C-K-B-R-I-D-G, A-S-O-C, A-S-O-C, dot com, dot com. That'll give you stuff in the, the consulting stuff I do on the real estate side, plus my Vistage stuff. If you want to know more about Vistage, www.visage dot com um, is a good source there.
1: Fantastic.
0: I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I have. Uh, almost 4,000, uh, connections on LinkedIn. So
1: yeah, you were everywhere, George. And like we said, during the conversation, you have, uh, knowledge that, you know, goes across industry, um, regardless of what it is, not just real estate. And that, um, that has a, you know, a lot of value in terms of, um, everything from gyms and training all the way through to, like you said, to stonework. So, um, fantastic having you on uh george thank you for your time we appreciate it
0: okay shelby thanks
1: thanks for listening if you enjoyed the show please take the time to leave us a review as it helps us connect with more like-minded people just like yourself for more information on the show its guests or to listen to more podcasts make sure to check us out on itunes at portland maine business podcast as well as online at portlandmainbusinesspodcast.com.